And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to the Saturday Slammin' Jam. Hosted by Andrew Schlicht with Alex Spears. How about we can just watch basketball? That's a man's jam! I like that idea. Live from Oklahoma. With questions and participants from all around the world. Put that on a poster! Whether you're flipping your flapjacks, tending to your yard, or just sipping your coffee, get ready, sit back, relax. It's the Saturday Slammin' Jam. Back is I missed this shot, I walk away, I'm still a chump. Here's Andrew. Welcome to the Saturday Slammin' Jam. I'm your host, Andrew Select. Go to theathletic.com slash NBA show and get the athletic for a discounted rate. Al, we're heading into just real basketball. There's no more trades. The buyout season is pretty much over, and there's a pretty nice playoff slash play-in slash tank race is going on in the league, and it's uh, man, it's, it's pretty great from a night-to-night basis, but tell us what happened in the NBA this week. Well, Andrew, it all started last Friday night with the real all-star game, Kings Clippers. The obvious choice for game of the year pushed the limits of what we thought was possible in a basketball game. The final score, Kings 176, Clippers 175, took two overtimes to achieve and was the second highest scoring game in NBA history. Andrew, just imagine if we could bring old Jimmy Naismith back for one day to watch that game. What a treat that would be for him. Just don't explain anything to him. Just sit him in the stands and let him see the final form of his invention, the Charizard of basketball. Leaf Monk scored a career-high 45 points. Kawhi had 44. Fox had 42. The Kings came back from 14 late in the fourth, then came back from six in the first overtime, and finally came back from six again in the second overtime. The Kings currently have the most efficient offense in NBA history and may have their eyes on the two seed because they are now only two games back of the Memphis Grizzlies. On Saturday, we followed up the Kings Clippers epic with a playoff-worthy show between Boston and Philly. The game was back and forth all night with the Celtics coming back from 15 in the fourth while Philly came back from eight down with five minutes left in the game. In the final moments with the score tied at 107, Jason Tatum hit the game-winning three from the top of the key with 1.3 seconds left. The ball was then inbounded to Joel Embiid who launched a one-handed prayer from the opposite three-point line that actually went in but was a split second late. The Celtics got the win, which was needed because there is a team hot on their tail. On Sunday, we traveled to the City of Roses, Portland, Oregon. Damian Lillard, who was already having a career year, added yet another highlight with a 71-point performance against the Houston Rockets. It is the second 71-point game of the season following Donovan Mitchell's game against the Bulls. Dame hit 13 threes, a franchise record, while also hitting all 14 of his free throws. Unfortunately for Portland, it was the lone highlight as of late because the Blazers have lost four of their last five, dropping to 29 and 33, 12th in the West, and up next, a six-game road trip featuring six games in 10 days. On Monday, Andrew, we got to talk about the New York Knicks, who have won seven games in a row, none more impressive 
than the 109-94 victory over the Boston Celtics on Monday night. Now, we've had some fun Knicks teams, Andrew, but this one might have some juice. Since Tibbs mercifully switched up his rotation on December 4th, the Knicks are 27-14 with the third-ranked offense and the seventh-ranked defense. Ooh. Newest addition, Josh Hart, is fitting like a glove yep. in Tibbs' rotation, currently shooting 62% from the field and 60% from three. Mitchell Robinson is back from his fractured thumb. The Knicks are hot, Andrew, and now sit only a game and a half back from home courts, home court <laughs> in the playoffs on oh, Tuesday. Yeah. Now, one of the side effects of the Knicks beating Boston is that it made room for the Bucks to take over the top spot in the East. The Bucks are currently in the midst of a 16-game winning streak. And on Tuesday, the next victim was the Brooklyn Nets. Giannis went for 33 and 15 in the win, and the Bucks moved to 45 and 17 by the end of the week. For the Nets, meanwhile, you know, there was some interest to see what this team would look like. They've struggled as of late. They are two and six since the deadline trades, including losers of four straight. In those four losses, the Nets have had losses by 44 to the Bulls and 24 to the Knicks. They've fallen to 34 and 28, now only a game and a half above the dangerous play-in zone. And on Wednesday, one of the reasons Brooklyn is in their current predicament made his debut with his new team. Kevin Durant made his presence known, shooting 10 of 15 from the field for 23 points. The Suns got the 105 to 91 win over the Charlotte Hornets, who had been playing well. Did you know the Hornets had a had they had won five games in a row, Andrew, coming into the Suns game? Unfortunately, wow. in that last win, the fifth win, LaMelo Ball fractured his ankle, which means he's going to miss the rest of the season. Up next for the Suns is the Maps on ABC Sunday, featuring a reunion between the two guys who gave Nets all those memories over the last couple years. And one of those guys played on Thursday in an important win for the new-look Mavs. The Mavs, with Luka and Kyrie, have lost five of six coming into Thursday night. Their opponent, the Philadelphia 76ers. The Mavs were up by more than 20, with only two minutes left in the third quarter, but somehow, some way. They almost gave it all away within a matter of minutes. By the nine-minute mark of the fourth quarter, the lead had shrunk to four. Now, following their loss to the Lakers, where they led by 27 at one point, this this would somehow be worse if they lost this one. But in the end, it was Kyrie scoring 42 in the game, including several important buckets in the fourth, helping the Mavs to a seven-point victory. What a week it was, Andrew. All right, Al. Every once in a while, we like to do our little NBA draft check-in with our guy Sam Bassini from The Athletic and the Game Theory Podcast. Sam, what's up, man? Is this a thing where when Oklahoma City becomes good, that we're no longer going to be friends? That, no. That's my question. Like, no. Am I going to be invited back when we Oklahoma are, City no longer has draft picks? Listen, we are draft <laughs> freaks. We were having down-to-dunk draft parties when the Thunder were picking 21st, and we were booing them when they took Terrence Ferguson. <laughs> so we, we're in this for the long haul, Sam. Don't worry. I Don't love worry. it. I'm here for it. This is fantastic. Uh, no, how's it going, guys? It's great to uh, see you. Uh, it's going great. The, the draft stuff is starting to really really kick into high gear. I'm, I'm actually getting super into it. Uh, the last time that we had you on, we talked about the perception of this class after Wimby and Scoot. And at the time, you felt like there were a large number of prospects who would potentially play their way into a top five pick. We are now only a couple weeks away from March Madness. Is there a pool of prospects from the next tier still as large as ever? Or has it been kind of narrowed down somewhat over the last couple of months? So... Up until 
recent events with Brandon Miller, where he seems to have brought Darius Miles' firearm to a shooting that resulted in the death of a woman where Darius Miles and another man, Michael Davis, are currently charged with murder uh, and accused of murder by the state of Alabama. I would have said Brandon Miller looks pretty clearly, at least among teams, as the guy that they trust most at number three. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that that still is probably the case. NBA teams are obviously doing their due diligence and obviously being very patient in terms of the way that they operate in gathering information and not making quick decisions on what happened with Brandon Miller. It seems like there is a lot of information still to come in regard to this so far uh, publicly at the very least, we have gotten a set of testimony from a police officer, as well as uh, a statement from Brandon Miller's attorney uh, in regard to what Brandon's case is in terms of what his involvement was in this uh, shooting. And we'll see where it goes. I'm trying to be very patient in terms of, I want to, I want to wait to hear everything out with this before I jump to conclusions, you know, one way or another, I think it's very possible that Brandon Miller did something incredibly wrong here. I think it's very possible that Brandon Miller is a witness. Uh, The fact that the state of Alabama seems to be treating him as a cooperating witness seems to be uh, a, uh, at least something to consider within all of this. And I I at least want to be patient in terms of not, jumping to a conclusion in one way or another before uh, figuring all of this out in regard to his draft stock. And of course, it's just worth noting that like draft stock is, you know, tangential to all of this, you know, a woman lost her life. There's a five-year-old, you know, boy that is going to be without his mother for the rest of his life. So, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I understand the question here and Brandon Miller, we have to talk about him in some respects as a basketball player, but there is that aspect of it. And, the question wasn't even about Brandon Miller. Obviously it was just a general question, but Brandon is a big question hanging over this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Amon Thompson uh, is another guy that the Thompson twins in general, maybe we want to talk about them next. Yeah. They are polarizing across front offices. Like there are front offices that think Amon Thompson is like the highest upside player in this class outside of Victor and Scoot. There are front offices that I've talked to that think that he is a real, he has a real potential to be a liability due to his lack of shooting and due to some potential issues as a half court processor. So it's real hit or miss when you get to those guys. I think Cam Whitmore is another guy that teams are a bit polarized on, depending Mm -hmm. on if you really buy the shot creation ability or if you are concerned about the fact that he doesn't seem to process well as a passer and a playmaker. Uh, And the defense has been a bit hit or miss throughout the course of the season, just in terms of exchanges and communication, things like that. Uh, You know, Anthony Black and Jairus Walker are guys that are really talented, really seem to process the game at a high level, but have limitations. Uh, In Mm -hmm. Anthony Black's case is a shooter. Uh, In Jairus Walker's case, you know, is he just like an undersized big or is he more of a, you know, six foot seven, six foot eight with a super long wingspan forward that can bring a lot to the table uh, as a potential ball handler and things like that. So I would say that there there are still a lot of questions after the top two. It's just that the questions now are maybe a bit different and they are a bit more 
crystallized in terms of how to how to think about this. So one of the players you just mentioned who happens to be one of the biggest risers from your first mock in October until now is Jarris Walker, who you now have at five in your most recent mock draft. The defensive upside has always been there. What have been the major developments in his offensive game that have caused him to jump up the rankings? And do you believe that what he's shown offensively will translate to the NBA? Yeah, I go back and forth on it. <laughs> He's one that I ride the roller coaster with. Uh, there are a lot of guys in this class. I feel like I'm riding the roller coaster with a little bit in terms of evaluating them and just like where I fall on them in the context of the rest of the players in the class. You know, in Jarris's case, I was someone who had him a little bit lower, largely because I always saw him as a bit more of a big as opposed to a uh, defensive wing. And I was a little bit worried about, you know, if he's just a six foot eight big, how does this work? And, and the thing that really showcased itself was the fact that he can move in space. The fact that he is someone that's going to be able to hold up in a lot of different defensive situations. Uh, that, that was something that I thought he could probably do, but the fact that he's doing it, not just at an acceptable level, but actually at a really high level, I think is really commendable to him in terms of showcasing this skill and commendable to the defensive scheme, which is hyper aggressive at Houston that allows him to showcase these skills. I really, really buy him on defense now offensively. That's why I have him more in like that seven or eight range as opposed to people who I've seen have him in the top four or five. I think he's a really good processor of the game. I think he's a great passer. Uh, I think that if you use him in short roll settings uh, where he's the screener, takes two steps, gets that, you know, middle of the court, uh, takes the pass from his guard, he can really cut you up from the middle of the court as a passer. And he has the ability to put the ball on the deck once and then get to the rim and finish. The shot mechanics worry me a little bit. He has touch, mm -hmm. which is really, really important. But he has like some hitchy shot mechanics, which feel a bit hit or miss. And then on top of it, he is a rudimentary ball handler at this point, I would say. He has these long strides that allow him to get to the rim, but I, I worry about the shake and if he can actually be like a real shot creator in any way. So if you have questions about the shot and you have questions about him handling the ball, there's there's a lower offensive floor, I think, than the typical potential top five or six pick. But defensively, I really buy him. And, and I think that those concerns are fixable moving forward. Uh, he is a very tricky one that I, I again, like I said, like I ride the roller coaster in terms of, you know, there are some days where I think he is, you know, I, I think he's a better basketball player right now than Cam Whitmore. But at the end of the day, like uh, Cam Whitmore's shot creation ability is just so ridiculous, I think, in terms of being able to gather and create that separation that I kind of just have to default to Whitmore personally. I think that there are going to be teams and evaluators that feel differently, though. Yeah, there's just something like aesthetically about Jairus's like offensive game that I'm that just feels off. Like I, I've watched him a bunch and really want to like him, but then yeah. they're just there's just like. He, he just feels a little out of control at times that I yeah I just don't really know what to do with it. But well, I mean, like the guy that it's worth considering him next to is Jeremy Sohan last year, right? Mm -hmm. And 
Yeah, all three of us were so fans. We were really, really in on the idea of what he can be. But Jeremy is just a little bit more fluid, I think, Mm -hmm. in the way he moves than Jairus, whereas Jairus can be a little bit more robotic at times, I think. Uh, I think uh, think Jeremy's movement skills and his ability to handle give him just a little bit more upside as a creator than Jairus. But I think that like Jairus's even defensive ability and his power. Like Jairus is a 240 pound like man who has a seven foot two wingspan and just like bullies players. Mm -hmm. That's going to give him a higher floor than what Sohan has. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, it's going to be really, really interesting to see where teams come down on all of this. Yeah. Uh, It's a question from E-Rig17. In your February 15th mock, you had Nick Smith Jr. at 12 saying that scouts desperately want to see more tape on Smith and that he could end up in the top five or in the bottom of the lottery. Since that mock, Smith has played four more SEC games, averaging 32 minutes, 18 points per game. Does his recent play have you leaning more toward top five or bottom of the lottery? I'm middle of the pack right now. I have Nick at number nine. And what I really like about Nick is the ability to play as an off-ball scorer. I think that that is where his skill set shines best right now. Uh, you know, playing next to someone like Anthony Black, finding those gaps as a cutter, being aggressive in trying to find little creases, little cracks, trying to find uh, you know little openings in the defense to separate from his man and create an open three-point shot. I think his feel offensively for finding space is just absolutely exceptional. Um, uh, You know, in terms of the on-ball stuff, I think there's a lot left there right now to be desired. He was a guy that struggled to... He's not like the most explosive guy in the world. He relies on craft. He relies on his footwork uh, to really get separation. This is kind of why the guy I've always thought of him as being similar to stylistically is Jamal Murray. Uh, mm-hmm. Someone that plays really, really well next to someone like Nikola Jokic can knock down shots from distance, but isn't the most explosive separator with the ball in his hands. And frankly, tends not to put a lot of pressure on the rim. That's actually the biggest thing that is lacking from Nick Smith's game right now. He's not a guy that puts a lot of pressure on the basket. A lot of it is from the three-point line and contested mid-range jumpers at this point. Even when he gets that crease to the rim, he tends to settle for little floaters as opposed to trying to create that contact and get to the foul line, right? Mm -hmm. I think that it's really, really tricky with Nick. And then there's also the idea that at Arkansas, that team without Trevon Brazil, who's an interesting draft prospect in his own right, uh, that team has no space on the interior for him, especially when he is driving and Anthony Black is on the opposite side. And, you know, you have the Mitchells, you have Jalen Graham, you have, you know, Ricky Council, who's more of a mid-range gunner than a three-point gunner. Everything is so condensed, so it's a bit harder for Nick Smith. But I do I do like him as a top 10 pick. Uh, I think that the the floor has probably risen a little bit. I just don't know that we've seen that like ceiling creation yet on the ball from him that really, you know, makes me enthusiastic about his uh, top five potential necessarily. Mm -hmm. So you had mentioned Cam Whitmore and that one of the 
questions about him is his passing, his playmaking. He's currently averaging 0.7 assists per game, has a 6.1% assist percentage. I went back and looked at some good NBA forwards who had a similar lack of assists in college. The two <laughs> names that popped up were John Collins and Larry Markkinen. How concerning is that lack of playmaking? Is there any context to his situation at Villanova that might help to explain it? The answer is like not not totally, to okay. be honest with it. Um, he's kind of unlike a lot of people that I've evaluated before because of the lack of passing. And it's interesting, like the guys that I've kind of in my mind considered is stylist, not stylistically similar, but like, Kim Whitmore is 230 pounds. He's six foot seven. He is explosive and physical and strong. Like he bullies guys, but also has these long strides that allow him to like get all the way to the rim if he wants to. Right. And the the guy that it almost reminds me most of in terms of the way that it could work itself out on the NBA court is Ben Matherin last year. So Ben is another guy that is just super explosive athletically. He's six foot six to six foot seven, very powerful athlete, very explosive, can get up and down in transition. Villanova is a team that while they have Eric Dixon, who can space the floor at the five and is like a little bit more physical uh, when he wants to post, but largely he's a guy that's going to space at the five. The rest of this team doesn't really have a lot of floor spacing around Cam Whitmore, and there aren't often driving lanes for him to find open areas. I think that once he gets to the NBA, we might see him just be able to bully guys to the basket in the same way that Benedict Matherin was not necessarily an elite free throw rate guy at Arizona, but his athleticism, his aggressiveness as a driver and his aggressiveness out in transition allowed him to pressure the basket at a very, very high level. On top of that with Whitmore, you also add in the ability. He just is so good at gathering and creating those open looks. Uh, he's really good at getting his feet underneath him, getting his balance underneath him, uh, either out of you know complicated multiple move ball handling, uh, you know, stringing together multiple moves off the bounce, or out in transition finding it off the catch, finding the three-point line, knocking down a three, right? So I think that the scoring ability with Whitmore and just his overall physicality is going to give him a real shot to be able to uh, exert that at the NBA level, uh, given the footwork and given the skills that he already has in terms of his body control. In every draft, there are several prospects at the top <laughs> who have three-point shooting as their uh, biggest question mark. Uh, how would you rank the following prospects in terms of your confidence of them developing a shot from most confident to least confident? So Scoot Henderson, Amon Thompson, Jarris Walker, Nick Smith, and Anthony Black. So give me your most confident to um, least confident. Yeah, I would say Nick Smith is just going to shoot. Like I'm not real worried about him as a shooter. Okay. I think Scoot is already polished and developed enough as a mid-range shooter that mm -hmm. I would say he is next. I do think Scoot is going to shoot at some point. I feel like pretty confident of that fact, to be honest. Uh, that's why I have him as like the best guard that I have really evaluated since I've been doing this. Um, oh, man. So it's Jarris and the Thompson twins now and Anthony Black? It's, 
yeah, Jairus. Yeah, we can do both Thompson twins and then Anthony Black. Yeah. Who who was the one you particularly asked about? Amon? Yeah, just Amon. I think Amon is the one I'm least confident in. I, I can okay. just start there. I, I'm like actually okay. pretty worried about his shot. I don't like it mechanically. Um, I think it's just going to take a lot of work to make that functional at the NBA level, it, at least in terms of the role he's going to play because – for all of those skills I just brought up from Cam Whitmore, just in terms of his ability to balance and, you know, gather and get his feet up under him. I think Amon really struggles with that. And Amon's mm-hmm. going to spend a lot of his time on the ball, if not almost all of his time on the ball. So mm-hmm. not having that skill really actually quite worries me a little bit. Yeah. Um, I would say of this group, I think I'm probably Jairus has the best touch. I don't know how it's going to extend out. I would say Jairus is probably next just in terms of the best touch. And then probably him and Anthony black are like pretty close. Anthony's pretty confident as a shooter, even if it doesn't go in all the time. I think that he also has touch. It's just a real mechanical issue. I think Jairus's mechanical issues are probably given the role that they're going to play a little bit easier to fix. Uh, mm-hmm. Jarris just has to be able to make like a spot three, a corner three. I, I don't see any of these guys as real movement shooters necessarily. Yeah. Um, and then I would say Asar next. And Asar has made strides in terms of the mechanics and um, looks a little bit less robotic. If Asar shoots, I wouldn't be totally surprised necessarily. I, I think that I would be a bit surprised if Amon shoots. I would not be crazy surprised if Asar shoots. Um, and Anthony Black and Jairus Walker, I think have a like solid chance to get to average shooters. So going from some questionable shooters to someone we, we are pretty confident in their shooting, Dariq Whitehead came into this season as a highly recruited prospect, but has been disappointing. He fell from seventh in your initial mock draft to 21st in your most recent one. You wrote about him. Does the tape on Whitehead or does the tape Whitehead put together in his high school career outweigh what we saw from him at Duke? Or do we trust the tape that says he's not a first round pick right now? The shooting has been real so far, but what was on that high school tape outside of the shooting that initially got scouts so excited about him? Oh, he was just a way better athlete. He looks, to be honest, like since he's gotten back from that, he injured, he got hurt at the beginning of the year Mm. with Duke. And it seemed, he seems to be a bit heavy uh, compared to what he was at Montverde. And I think that what the result of that has been is diminishing his explosiveness. This was a guy that was like, he was never like the strongest athlete in the world. He was never Amon Thompson, Cam Whitmore in that class of athleticism, but he was super aggressive and he had like a pretty real first step to where if he got downhill in a straight line, he was strong enough to go through people at the Mm -hmm. rim and finish. And plus he has really good touch. He also just has the ability to dunk on people, right? So it's that explosiveness. We haven't seen that level of explosiveness. And I think there's a real reason we haven't seen that level of explosiveness. There's a real explanation for, I believe he's represented for NIL, at least by Excel. There's a real case that Excel or whoever represents him in the end can make saying, you know, we didn't get to see the best of him. And we also have a prior, you know, uh, precedent for this just a season with ago with AJ, AJ Griffin. Griffin. Yeah. It, I was going to ask. Where is that a similar thing? I think it is. And AJ Griffin got hurt in the preseason. He got back. 
he honestly looked a bit heavier than what he looks right now. So I kind of wonder, I'm not accusing Duke of anything. I just wonder if their uh, training, you know, in rehab stuff results in these guys getting a little bit heavier as they're trying to strengthen uh, the areas around those muscles. And it might result, you know, over the course of the, like the one season where they're at Duke in looking a little bit less explosive, possibly. This is a hypothesis. This is not me like reporting this or anything. This is just me trying to come up with potential answers here. But AJ Griffin got to the NBA and just looked way more fluid and mobile and coordinated uh, in terms of his drives and in terms of looking just less square. AJ Griffin played very square to the basket last year and like mm-hmm. struggled to turn his hips. It felt like uh, that has been much less of an issue in Atlanta this year. And I would imagine that a big part of that was uh, the training that he did in the off season and the training that Atlanta uh, gave him in order to fix those problems. You had some interesting names at the back end of the lottery in your most recent mock. Uh, yeah. Rayon Ruper at 13, uh, Jalen Hood Shafino at 14, and Jet Howard at 15, three players who have all risen up draft boards this season. Uh, who of those three do you think has the best shot to continue rising even further by draft day hmm. and potentially be a top 10 pick? I'd say Rupair is the guy. So Rupair okay. has gone from being like a really interesting six foot seven wing with a seven foot three wingspan that is a project, basically, right? Grew up kind of playing a little bit of point guard in France, mm-hmm. grew into this ridiculous frame, and has always been a developing shooter over the course of his time in New Zealand. He is first and foremost, a dogged worker. Like he is like, you have to lock him out of the gym to stop him from overworking himself worker Mm -hmm. from what I've been told. And you can see that he has gotten stronger. You can see that his overall uh, comfort playing with professionals has increased drastically over his time in the NBL. This is a guy who is a starting player. He plays like 20 to 25 minutes a night on a team that is in the NBL finals right now based upon his defense where the breakers are the best defensive team in the NBL. Hmm. You can, he's not necessarily a guy you can make a case should have won the defensive player in, you know, of the year in the league, but his defensive ability is absolutely exceptional. He is unbelievable at the point of attack. His ability to stay attached to players uh, in screening situations is absolutely terrific. His help defense, his team defense, it's all top notch. He is the epitome of a professional there. He has gone about uh, crafting his game in the exact way that NBA teams will value him. On top of it, You guys as Thunder fans know this better than anybody. You know, we mentioned before we went live, uh, Terrence Ferguson is a name that Oklahoma City has drafted before. Alex, are you looking behind you to see if Terrence is actually like standing behind you? (laughs) No, it just started hailing (laughs) in Portland. I was trying to figure out what the sound was. Uh, Then also Usman Jang is another name here uh, that... Was was RJ Hampton drafted by the Thunder and then moved on draft night as well, maybe? Like, I can't remember if that's how that worked or not. Um, so you guys are well aware of... The Thunder, but yeah, we, yeah, we know. Yeah. Yeah. You guys are well aware of how these guys typically look in Australia. 
It took yeah. 10 games for Usman Jang for a Breakers team last year that was absolutely terrible at the end yeah. of the year where they just kind of let him rock for teams to go, oh, lottery, lottery, mm -hmm. draft him in the lottery. Um, you know, RJ Hampton is a guy that really struggled in the NBL. LaMelo Ball, his team did not win games in the NBL. They were pretty terrible. And then, you know, Terrence Ferguson barely played. You can go up and down the list. A lot of these guys, this is the first one that has genuinely contributed to winning basketball and has gotten real minutes that are impactful for his team uh, in regard to a playoff race. So yeah. I think that speaks exceptionally highly of Rayon Repair. And then you throw in all of the intel. You throw in the fact that I think the shot is not broken. And you throw in the fact that he is a sharp player who has real uh, real feel for the game from having grown up playing that point guard position. I personally have him around like 10 or 11 right now. Mm -hmm. But I uh, I think teams are more in the like back half of the lottery to you know maybe 17, 18, 19 range. Okay. So I have a question from 405 sports fan who asks, why is Taylor Hendricks not higher on your board, Sam? Statistically, he's as good. Don't answer yet. Statistically, he's as good as anyone. He's 6'9", 7'3", wingspan, shooting 41% from three, almost two blocks and a steal per game. Looks like he moves pretty well. A lot of mocks have him creeping into their top 10. What am I missing? Yeah, you're not missing anything. Uh, Taylor Hendricks is someone that I have at like 11 or 12 now. So I'm, Ooh, I am like right Ooh. in the range with repair okay, okay. Um, on my board. He is the more I talk to teams, the more I think he might be the like surprise guy that nobody has is like a top 10 pick right now that uh -huh. teams are like, Oh no, like this is, this is a real potential top 10 pick. Uh, moves really well. That was the thing that I struggled with early on to try and figure out how well does he move on the perimeter? And I think he can be a bit upright. I think he can play like a bit tall in his stance, but at the same token, I think that his movement ability and his fluidity and his feet are actually pretty good and that he's probably going to be able to make it work uh, as a switch defender, at least at the very least, like not necessarily like a full scale switch defender, but like a good enough player that's going to be able to deal with twos, maybe uh, not necessarily the fastest twos, but be able to like switch out onto them, not get toasted. Right. Really sharp help defender as a rim protector, a uh, weak side rim protector at the very least. Plays the center a decent amount for UCF. You know, sometimes they have the uh, Lahat Thione kid who ends up at center. But you know, Hendricks, they switch a lot. They end up with him kind of across the board positionally. Really, really buy the defense at a high level. I buy the shot at a high level. It's just I don't know. I, I don't know where the ball skills are right now. Uh, I don't, he seems to feel pretty comfortable dribbling, dribbling. I don't feel that comfortable when he dribbles. <laughs> I'll say that. Uh, <laughs> I haven't seen him make too many high level passes this year, but at the end of the day, six foot nine, long arms, very mobile, good help defense instincts, really good shooter. That tends to be the pathway now as Thunder fans know, positional size, positional length, real athleticism, switchable defense, shooting. If you can, you can find those guys, they tend to go a little bit higher in the draft. Uh, so we have a question from Nick Sanchez, PhD. Do you have an early favorite for a projected second rounder who could become an elite role player in a few years? Hmm. Elite role player. Oh, 
Honestly, I don't love the second round in this class if I'm being completely transparent. Okay. I would say... I would say Kevin McCuller is probably the guy that stands out if the shooting ever comes along. I mean, elite level defender, can put the ball on the floor enough as a second side creator, you know, finalist for defensive player of the year, you know, great point of attack, can defend one through three physical enough to match up with fours if he gets locked onto one. Um, It's all about the shooting. I I know that teams that saw him pre-draft last year said that he went in and, you know, had some moments where he really knocked down shots, but he's shooting like 30% from three right now. And over the course of his career, it's something like 30 to 31% from three. So if he can shoot it, that's one. I'm honestly going through the process now of trying to find the guys that I think are potential stash guys, not even stash, like maybe like promise guys or, you know, guys that are, maybe first round picks next year, but want to leave college and, you know, maybe a team like the thunder, you know, they currently have pick 37 Boston, who has a bunch of open roster spots at the end of their roster, uh, trying to find those guys that I think like could really end up being high leverage selections in this year's class. Okay. Sam, last question. Last week on the low post, Zach had Jonathan Gavoni on. He asked him a very interesting question that I wanted to get your take on. He was asking him if he could be the GM for one of the bottom four teams. How would he rank them? Instead of making you the GM, I just want to get your general feeling about these four franchises. You know, Houston, Charlotte, Detroit, San Antonio. Based on everything you know as of today in terms of their draft position, current players, future picks, owners, management, all that, how would you rank those four franchises as far as betting on their futures? Charlotte last. I just don't really have a lot of faith in there ownership or front office to be mm-hmm. honest. Like I, I just don't, um, you know, I, I don't have a lot of faith in anything. I, I think Mitch Kupchak does a good job of evaluating second rounders. That's really the only positive thing I can say about that front office right now. Uh, let's see. Houston, Detroit and San, San Antonio. Antonio. San Antonio. Mm-hmm. I think I would have San Antonio third right now if only because they don't really have any of the centerpieces yet like they don't have i mean like they're who 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 would you consider their best prospect probably sohan at this point right maybe devin vassell vassell and so yeah yeah, that's I like right. both of those guys a lot. I think they're starters. I don't think they're potential all stars. Like it, yeah. with Houston, I can swing. I can squint and say, I see all star ups- upside for Alper and Shangun. I can see all star upside for you know X, Y, and Z guy. I can't see all star upside for you know Devin Vassell and Sohan right now. Mm-hmm. I think I'd go Detroit one because I, I like I like Cade. I like Jade Ivy. Mm-hmm. I think that I would take those two over Jalen Green, Jabari Smith, and Albert and Shengu at this point. Mm-hmm. What about we all know who's going number one in this draft? But <laughs> are there any teams that any of those teams that if they got number two would think twice about taking Scoot Henderson? just for fit reasons, or should they just say, screw it. We, we have to take this guy no matter who else is on our team. Yeah. Look, that's what I would do. 
Um, yeah. I, 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 it wouldn't even be a question in my mind. Again, I, I think Scoot would be the number one pick in a majority of drafts that we've seen yeah. recently. I think he's an absolute like superstar. Mm-hmm. Do I think there are teams that look like I Detroit went down specifically the road. Detroit would just be my question. Like, yeah, like, look, Detroit went down the road of considering Jalen green the year that they took Cade Cunningham. Right. Yeah. Like to the point where, you know, all of what I was told and all of what our colleague James Edwards was told was that they really undertook a process when in reality, you know, any you know, human being, any other human being on the planet would have taken Cade Cunningham. I'm sorry. Like, mm-hmm. eh, let me yeah. rephrase. Any other human being in an NBA front office would have taken Cade Cunningham at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there are the contrarians out there that were high on Evan Mobley, the contrarians that, you know, love Jalen Suggs and love Jalen Green. But, you know, I, I think 30 out of 30 teams would have taken Cade Cunningham. And Detroit, they really undertook a process, right? They really undertook a robust decision-making effort Mm -hmm. to decide what they want to do. And often I think this Detroit front office makes dumbfounding decisions. Uh, The decision to trade for Mark or Marvin Bagley, and then the decision to get Marvin Bagley and give him three years, 39 million and the continual amount of resources that they put into the big uh, position Yep. When they already have Jalen Duran, who looks really good, so yeah, I. What did you think of the James Wiseman acquisition? <laughs> I, I think it's really good for him to get playing time. I yeah. they didn't give up anything. Like, look here. Here's the thing: they didn't give up anything that's like gonna kill them long term, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. I, I would probably. I'm not a big Sadiq Bay fan. Uh, I would not want to pay Sadiq Bey eight figures a year personally. So in that vein, I thought that it was reasonable to trade Sadiq Bey for James Wiseman. I would rather have Jalen Duran long-term than James Wiseman. And I don't Mm -hmm. think that they're going to have success playing together. So you basically kick the can down the road for a year to see what you have with Wiseman you kick the contract can down the road a year, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think that James Wiseman is going to be as demanding of an extension this summer in the same way that Sadiq Bay may have been. Yeah. So, I, I don't. Did I hate it? No. Do I think it's a situation that is? You know, James Wiseman's last landing spot over the next couple of years. I probably don't, but, yeah. uh, you know, I've been encouraged by the pick and roll and the rim running ability that we've seen so far. The, he just has a long way to go defensively because he's lost a lot of reps over the course of the last three or four years. Mm-hmm. Uh, last question Who are your favorite rookies to watch this year? Ooh. <laughs> oh, I would say. 
I mean, the the not sexy answer is Keegan Murray. I really just enjoy watching yeah. that Sacramento he's Kings good. team. He's just a really good player, man. Well, and they use him in really creative ways. Like they've started using yeah. him off of movement at a really high level. They've started yep. using him, you know, in dribble handoffs. They've started to incorporate him in creative actions where teams are expecting like, you know, a zoom action or a pistol action with the Aaron Fox and Demonis Sabonis. And they'll play off of that using Keegan now. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Keegan's a good example. I really like, you know, Jalen Williams obviously is terrific. Uh, Just, you know, the all around game from being able to dribble past shoot to taking on tough defensive assignments at the very least. I don't think he's very good at it yet, but you know, he's, Six foot six with a seven foot two wingspan. I think that's a big part of his future, uh, yeah. and a big part of him becoming the player that he can be as like a hyper 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 elite level role player, uh, or like the second or third best player on a really good team. Um, yeah, I mean, like it's been it's been a bit of a struggle to watch Paulo recently. I think just because of the inefficiency. I think it's been a bit of a struggle to watch. Ben Matherin yeah. recently, uh, you know, Walker Kessler, you know, great as he has been and he has been absolutely phenomenal. I'm not sitting there turning to jazz games because I want to go watch great technical drop coverage defense. <laughs> you know what I He's mean? He's great. He is great at it, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like all due respect to, you know, Walker and he's been phenomenal. I don't, I'm not taking anything yeah. away from him. I'm just yeah. saying I'm not turning to the game. I'm turning to watch Laurie Markin and dunk on everybody and, yeah. you know, be as incredible as he's been. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm trying to think of, you know, someone who's like a little bit, a little bit off the beaten path. Maybe, I mean, maybe, maybe Jaden Ivy is, you know, to talk about Detroit as we just did, Jaden Ivy's taken some real strides over the course of the last month or so. Uh, no doubt. Really even yeah, he's like, shot the ball well lately. Yeah. Six weeks. The game is slowing down for him, which mm-hmm. for someone who has the immense explosiveness that he has, that ability to have the game slow down a little bit, I think has just been so, so critical. He is obviously in the midst of a run where he's knocking down shots, but the the thing that's more important for me is the pace. Like it it seems Mm -hmm. like his mind is starting to see what's on the court a little bit quicker and Mm -hmm. he's able to change gears a little bit more, which allows him to get the most out of his athleticism when he utilizes it on the court. So uh, that would probably be another one. And then, you know, uh, Mark Williams with Charlotte has been really interesting recently as well. Yeah, yeah, he's played well. Go follow Sam on Twitter at Sam underscore Vecini. Go listen to the Game Theory podcast. And you can also listen to it on YouTube. If you prefer to listen to or just watch people talk on YouTube, you can also watch this show on YouTube. Search The Athletic NBA Show, but also search the Game Theory podcast. And, of course, read Sam on the athletics, Sam, thanks so much for coming on, man. Yeah, of course, man. We'll have to do it again soon so I can get redemption from the last Andrew versus yes. the beat game. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> thanks, Sam. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. All right, Andrew, it is now time for the Wheel of Fandom, our weekly segment where we spin a wheel, it lands on a team, and we become fans of that team for the next week. This past week, the Wheel of Fandom landed on the Atlanta Hawks at arguably the perfect time as they were going through a period of transition. A week ago, the Hawks fired Nate McMillan, and this week we got our first look at Quinn Snyder, the new head coach in Atlanta. The Hawks got two big wins this week, the first a blowout over Cleveland, and the second a Trey Young game winner over the Nets. Unfortunately, they lost their first game with Snyder in charge, bringing them back to 500, eighth in the East. Per cleaning the glass, the Hawks are 16th in offense, 21st in defense. Andrew, if our favorite team is the Hawks, who is our guest? We've got Brad Rowland, the host of the Locked on Hawks podcast. Brad, what's up, man? Thanks for having me, guys. Quinn Snyder will never be as good as Joe Prunty was as the Hawks interim head coach. <laughs> the Joe Prunty era. An yes. Amazing run. Uh, we did get to watch Quinn Snyder's first game as a head coach. It was a close loss to the Wizards. Uh, knowing how Snyder's team play, teams played in Utah, is there anything from those Jazz teams that you're hoping to, that he can bring from the Jazz to the Hawks' offensive playbook? Yeah, I think a little bit more innovation, generally speaking, is probably the easiest way to get into it because while maybe McMillan has his strengths, uh, innovation on offense is not one of those strengths. And I think as soon as they got DeJounte Murray, it was pretty clear to a lot of people that like Nate was not going to be the guy to maximize those two players, Trey Young and DeJounte in the backcourt. So, you know, obviously at the end of Utah, uh, they had Donovan Mitchell and Mike Conley playing together. And that's a pretty decent analog for what Trey and DeJounte can be. And also just like, you know, using two bigs freely and being able to do that with John, as long as John Collins is still on this team and he still is at this moment in time, um, <laughs> they had they had Derek Favors and Rudy Gobert playing together. So that's a couple of little things. And just generally speaking, Quinn is just well-regarded on offense. And I think this team has really needed that infusion of uh, the ability to kind of adapt to personnel and also just be a little bit more innovative. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Trey DeJounte pairing because that's kind of been a topic of conversation since the trade. They've now played 51 games together. How have you seen their chemistry on the court develop over the course of the season? How are you feeling about that core as like a long-term backcourt for the Hawks? Yeah, I think it's gone reasonably well. It's not gone perfectly by any means, nor has it been a disaster. And I think people that don't watch the Hawks might assume that it's just not going well at all because of the record the Hawks have. They're underachieving. And, you know, big picture, it's like, you know, first first people to get the heat there are Trey number one and then maybe DeJounte number two. And I think if you look at, like, the way they've played together, it's been a lot of, like, your turn, my turn is the way I would say it, which is expected on some level. Like, those guys are both point guards and that's a very simple way to put it but they both had they both used to have the ball in their hands Trey in particular and I think that the results have been pretty strong when those guys play together I think they're like plus 4.2 net rating when they play together that's not incredible but it's pretty solid for a team that's 500 and I'm looking forward to see how they play off each other more because right now again it's kind of that you know your turn now my turn later and when they split up it's a lot of both guys just a lot of usage on both on both ends that's going to happen but I'm looking forward to seeing how Snyder kind of implements some more like uh, I don't know, play off of each other is probably the best way to put it. Just, you know, using each other's strengths and weaknesses um, to their advantage and being able to kind of create space and, uh, you know, especially 
with DeJounte on the ball and Trey off has been the part that I think a lot of people wanted to see coming in. And DeJounte has not been able to necessarily do that. And I think maybe with a little bit more play design, Trey moving more off the ball could unlock some things on both sides. So the defense has been an issue in Atlanta again. The Hawks are 21st in defense despite adding DeJounte Murray last summer. In the Trey Young era, the Hawks have been unable to field a top half defense over a full season. How optimistic are you that Snyder can get this roster to play defense? It's a big question, of course, especially when, look, I mean, I think Trey's actually been a little bit better this year defensively, but that's that's better on a, a very low bar, of course. You know, Trey's never going to sure. be a great defender, and I think that is one inherent challenge, and I think that kind of probably limits them from being an elite defense at any point, but I do think the Hawks can construct and have, for limited stretches, a defense that's pretty decent with Trey Young. That's possible, and I think the mole is always going to be incredible offense and pretty good defense as far as like building, building a contending-level team if you're the Hawks. But I think that Snyder will be hopefully instrumental in kind of boosting that. You know, he, he built the whole ship around Rudy Gobert in Salt Lake City, and it worked at a high level. Obviously, in the playoffs, famously, perimeter stuff was kind of a disaster for the Jazz, and they couldn't stop anybody, and Rudy was overstretched. But the Hawks have decent personnel. If you look up and down the roster, personnel is not terrible on this roster defensively. There are some guys who are questions. Trey, you know, AJ Griffin is still a rookie, and rookies are generally pretty bad, etc., but Clickapel is good. Kongu is good. John Collins is a good defender. I think Dejounte Murray honestly is a little bit overrated defensively, and I say that in a nice way. Like I think he gets, he gets steals, and that generally jumps off the page. He's a really good mm-hmm. active off ball guy, but his on ball defense has been lacking. And I kind of heard that actually. You know, back to San Antonio, I kind of poked around the guys who cover that team, and they were like, "Hey, don't be fooled." he's not going to like change your life as an on-ball defender. He's more of an off-ball creator. I think that'll be an area I think still to watch for this Hawks team is another on-ball defender because they kind of want DeJounte roaming. They have DeAndre Hunter, but, you know, scheming around Trey, they're going to have to almost be perfect defensively to really build that top 10 defense that they want. So I'm looking forward to seeing what Quinn does. And I think just as this team gets better, there's room to grow defensively, but they're also, I think there is kind of a ceiling unless you just have just perfect personnel around him. We haven't really asked you about like the the fan opinion of this hire. Is it generally pretty ex- excited from the Hawks fan base that they were able to get Quinn Snyder? I think so. I mean, he he got like a standing ovation at the first introduction of his first game, which is kind of funny. Like, it's a very <laughs> yes. odd thing to see a coach get like appreciated <laughs> like that uh, before a game. I think a lot of that probably has to do with the fans were just kind of done with Nate McMillan, and that's yeah. yeah. A very natural fan thing, you know, especially when the team's underachieving. The coach is the first guy out of the box that's going to get all, no all the heat. I think Nate um, has, you know, there's a sentiment out there that he's just like this disastrous coach now. And maybe Millen's been around for a long time. I don't think he's a great coach, but he's not a disaster. Like he's he's perfectly fine in a lot of instances. But when a fan base turns on your coach, the, the next guy is going to get a bump no matter what. And then you throw in Snyder's actual track record. He's been good, obviously, as a head coach in Utah, even when championships or anything like that. But I think you can point to a successful track record over six, eight seasons in Utah and then factor in, you know, Nate's removal. And also midseason, the whole thing is just very strange. It's kind of unprecedented almost for a team as good as the Hawks have been, obviously not been great this year, but they're still trying to win to change their coach mm-hmm. with 22 games to go or whatever it was. That just doesn't ever happen. So I think it's a little bit of a malaise right now, but everybody's kind of excited about Quinn Snyder just because he's not Nate and he's a proven winner. So the other big move that they had was a trade that brought in Sadiq Bay from Detroit to Atlanta. What have been your initial thoughts on his immediate fit? And what do you think about their long-term plan for him with him being extension eligible this summer? I thought it was pretty interesting as a move because the Hawks have a particular set of, uh, I would say, self 
constrained uh, um, impact in terms of their luxury tax avoidance. They kind of refused to go into the tax. And getting Sadiq Bey for the cost of, you know, weird cost of five second round picks was a move to both add talent and add depth, but also not get much more expensive. Like he's still on a rookie contract. And that was, I think, a big part of the appeal of bringing him in. You know, I'll be surprised if he gets extended this summer because, look, he's going to be a backup on this team and not a bad one. Like He'll be a sixth, seventh man, I would imagine. But generally, guys who are reportedly asking for a lot of money, Sadiq Bey, if you listen to people in Detroit, wanted a lot of money probably when, when he hits an extension. And that's not usually how that goes for role players like him. But at the very least, he's cheap next year for the Hawks. He's fit in well as kind of that combo forward. He gives him a different look as a backup four. You know, John Collins, a little bit more traditional big at the four versus Bay is more of a pure spacer combo forward type. Defensively, it's been an adventure so far, but I would say charitably, he's been play- he's literally played for four different coaches in about two weeks. So there's probably a little bit of a learning curve there. I think defensively is going to be where I'm a little bit worried about Sadiq Bey. But as far as like just impact on the roster, he just gives them extremely valuable depth. The Hawks have a very stark lack of depth, like beyond the top eight or nine guys on this year's team. And it lost them some games early in the season. And just adding another guy who they can trust to be a pretty solid player who can space the floor and just be a guy out there has already been really helpful and will be helpful next year, too. So you mentioned the luxury tax concerns. So this summer, is your expectation that they do make a move to get either below the luxury tax or close to the luxury tax? And would that be likely John Collins or Bogdanovich or someone else? Yeah, my general operating is until they pay it, I'm going to assume they don't pay it, if that makes sense. I think going into this season, I was pretty defiant with people locally just say, look, they're not going to pay the tax. I heard that repeatedly about this particular season, and they're not going to pay the tax this year. Uh, Moving forward, I think that there's a world where maybe they would if they are at a certain caliber of like proven winning status. But, you know, until a team does it, you just kind of can't assume they're going to. And right now, if Bogdanovich were to opt in, he has a player option for next year, they're already over the tax line. So they're going to have to do some maneuvering. And Collins has been in rumors, as you guys well know, for what, three years now, essentially. He's a, he's, a, he's a very obvious casualty of that. If they can go ahead and move on from him, they can move Bogdanovich if he, if he were to opt in. I think eventually they're going to have to choose a center between Clint Capella and Ayaka Kongwu. Mm-hmm. Not because either one of those guys is not very good. They're, they're both really good, and they're both very different players, but uh, you don't draft a guy like a Kongwu at number six overall to have him be a backup for his entire rookie contract, which is about to happen. If they don't move off Capella next year, he'll be a backup for four years. That, that yeah. just doesn't, that's not, that was not the plan, especially because Kongwu's good. It's not like he's going to be a bust. Like he's a good player already. So, those are the three very obvious cost-saving measures they can do. Something with Collins or Bogey or Capella, or they swing bigger and make a make a combination trade because they're not satisfied. I know one thing internally, they're not loving being 500, and hopefully Quinn Snyder fixes some of that stuff for them. But there is that internal pressure to win and win bigger than they have so far. Yeah, how do how do fans feel about the Capella Kong Wu battle there? <laughs> it goes back and forth. You know, I, I think that I've always been a little bit higher on Capella than the fan base is. And I think that's just inherent with this young, flashy guy behind him. And I like yeah. Kongwu too. Like, I, I like that draft pick a lot. I was very high on him in the draft. He's going to be a really good player. But that te- the tendency is to kind of crap on the veteran in favor of the young guy. If you're a mm-hmm. fan that you want to see the young guy play, but I'm just, look, Capella's really good. I think he's a top 10 or 12 center in the league. He's very valuable. He's getting older. Obviously he's not, he's not quite as springy as he was in Houston or even early in, in his Atlanta tenure, but he's still a very valuable player. And there's some challenges I'll say to having both of them because 
neither one of those guys is a shooter and they're also so different like a kong was big appeal is that he's this really um really uh, i would say versatile he's able to get on the floor he's a really good athlete he's twitchy he's very small for a center admittedly but yeah. he's a lot he, a lot of flexibility there with him whereas capella is a lot more traditional he's not a seven footer but he's he's 610 he's physical and he's kind of just that drop that, that drop defender pick and roll guy so trying to design a system around these two very different centers who both need to play is hard and I think that's a challenge for for Snyder as well. But I'm looking forward to them picking a lane because I think they just kind of have to at some point. And mm-hmm. it's not because either one of those guys is that good. They're both really good players. It's just that uh, team building wise, just having a Kong would be a 20 minute a game minute a game backup still, and then entering his extension talks this summer. I'm sure his agency was like, hey, he'd like to start at some point and be a guy. And that's just a logical conversation they have to have. Yeah. Uh, so Hawks rookie AJ Griffin has had a really nice season so far, shooting. Just under 39% from three. Uh, some of the concerns about AJ in the pre-draft process were his athleticism, defense, and ability to make plays for others. Have any of those concerns been answered by Griffin this season, in your opinion? I think a little bit. You know, certainly as a rookie and a 19-year-old rookie, he has some defensive questions still. I think that um, I've kind of thought of him as a guy that you're hoping that they don't have to hide long term. I don't think he's ever going to be a great defender. He is a little bit limited, just like you know, quickness-wise. But he's he's big and strong. He's got he's already kind of filled out. He's very physical for a guy who's 19 years old, and he kind of knows what he's doing by 19-year-old standards. He's got a long way to go still, like any rookie would. But I've been a little bit encouraged by that. He's not good yet, but he, uh, there are some signs. Um, his playmaking has kind of been underutilized because they kind of put him in a pretty small role, which makes sense. They're trying to win now. He's yeah. been mostly a catch-and-shoot guy. But when he's had the opportunity to kind of flash a little bit of that mid-pick-and-roll game, a little bit of that floater game, he's kind of showed that off. And I think, you know, just honestly, it's a big step forward for him to stay healthy for this full season. You know, knock on wood, he's been healthy all year, and he had major injury concerns dating back to high school. And that's really good. So they love him. I think they're talking about, you know, maybe future star status. Obviously, that's tough to say for a guy who is still a backup on a decent team, but not a great team right now. But he checks every box. And you guys may know this. He used to be the number one player in that high school class until he had injuries. And like the upside really is there for a guy who could be at least a borderline star. And I think he honestly, beyond Trey and DeJounte, I, I think basically based on what they've been saying, he's probably number three on their like building forward list. Not the best player now by any means, but as far as, far as like untouchable and trade stuff, I think they're not going to get rid of AJ Griffin for almost anything, and they are really excited about him. And he's answered a lot of questions, even if he still has some for sure. Yeah, and he mentioned the idea that they could potentially move on from Capella at some point or have to make a decision, and that just brings up this fact that I, you know I was looking at their basketball reference page, and you kind of forget how young this team is. <laughs> like it feels yeah. like the Hawks have been around for a while now, and we all th- you know, like know this team. But they are so young, and if they did move on from someone like Capella, I mean, they they would get even younger. And a lot of those young guys are still there's still a lot of room there for for growth and development. Definitely, and that's it's an interesting like tease because they went to the conference finals, and you just assume that team is just ready to win now. And that was kind of a mirage. I think everybody kind of knows that now. They weren't quite that good, and they did it. I mean, they still that was still the best run that they've had in Atlanta. Any team they won a they won a game in the conference finals. Actually, they won two, but. Um, yeah, they're, they're still very young. Capella's the only guy, sorry, Bogdanovich is the only guy that, that's a regular that's actually 30. Everybody else is under that, and Capella's the only one that's even above like 26. So all of their core guys are still fairly young. Trey Young is very young still. Like, I know he gets a lot, you know, the heat is there on him all the time, but mm-hmm. he's 24 years old, and this is only his fifth season in the NBA. So um, they have a long, they have a lot of upside still, I think. 
at the same time, they are also kind of locked in if you want to view it through that lens of like they spent a lot of money on this team and they're they're kind of they're capped out and there's some flexibility, but they're uh, at, at the same time young, but also established in a way where they've kind of hitched their wagon to this group, at least for a little while, especially if you factor in Murray's situation. So it's uh, it's nuanced for sure. Yeah, I, I was curious. You mentioned that Trey gets a lot of heat. What's the what's the reaction in Atlanta when people do like fake trades or like national people <laughs> like you know Trey Young is, is you know next to be traded next star to be traded you know he people are already kind of poaching him off the Hawks. It's not received well. I'm sure you guys could uh, not be surprised by that. Yeah. Uh, there's I will say in the last year or so. I think both Trey Young and also like ownership slash leadership have gotten more heat locally than they ever have before. There was a honeymoon period where if you said anything that was remotely questioning about Trey, you got yelled at. And that's just what it is. Like he's obviously the star player. He's very good. And at this point, I think he's almost underrated nationally for a long time. He was kind of the picture of a guy who might be overrated given his stats. But I think if you listen to the way he's ta- he's discussed now, he's kind of fallen off that mainstream radar. And I think he's kind of the same guy. He's really good. He has his weaknesses for sure. But as far as fans are concerned, I think that most people still view him as the guy and he's their franchise. And quite honestly, he's the most famous, biggest star they've had in 35 years. It, and that's that's it's, for a long time fans like they were better than this as a team in the Al Horford, Joe Johnson era. But they, those guys are not Trey Young as far as like Q rating is concerned. So um, I think, you know, realistically, I, I try to dance around it a little bit like there might be a world where he asks out at some point and they and they have to face that world that's that's just the modern nba in a lot of ways for a team that's not winning at the highest level but as far as like every time there's a national discussion of something about moving on from trey or how much pressure he's under the fan base does not enjoy that and certainly does uh not really acknowledge it other than just like kind of yelling into the cloud Discovered the latest collections from David Yerman, as seen recently styled on basketball stars like jaime jaquez jalen green d'angelo russell and others. David Yerman is a celebrated American jewelry company inspired by the beauty of art, architecture, and the natural world. The story of David Yerman begins in New York City with David, a sculptor, and his wife Sybil, a painter and ceramicist. When the artists began collaborating, their goal was to simply make beautiful designed objects to wear. Over 40 years later, the Yermans and their son, Evan, continue to redefine American luxury jewelry with timeless, modern collections for women and men defined by inspiration, innovation, consummate craftsmanship, and cable, the brand's artistic signature. David Yerman's collections are available on davidyerman.com. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service that you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Well, Brad, thank you so much for answering our Hawks questions. It is now time to play Andrew versus the Beat, our weekly trivia show where Andrew goes head-to-head against an NBA beat writer this week, Brad Rowland of Locked on Hawks. Now, Brad, how this works, I've come up with eight questions about the Hawks. Uh, Some are easy, some are hard. You're going to give me a number between one and eight. It'll correspond to a question. If you get it right, you'll get at least two points. If you get it wrong, Andrew will have a chance to steal for one, we'll go back and forth until all the questions have been asked and answered. 
So Brad, just to start us off, all I need is a number between one and eight. Uh, two. Question number two. Like every NBA team, the Hawks have a growing collection of nicknames on basketballreference.com. Oh, no. Oh, geez. Which of the following is not an official basketball reference nickname for a Hawks player? So I'm going to give you five nicknames. Four are real and appear on basketball reference. One is fake and made up. So here we go. Sweet Lettuce, Baby Boy, Duncan Deacon, Swiss Bank, Gary Bird. Once again, that is Sweet Lettuce, Baby Boy, Duncan Deacon, Swiss Bank, Gary Bird. Oh, man. I I think it's one of the first two. I will say Sweet Lettuce is not a real one. (laughs) That is correct. Yeah, baby. That is actually a nickname. So what I usually do for this is I try to go on like Reddit and see like threads (laughs) of people trying to come up with nicknames. So when I typed in AJ Griffin nickname, it turns out there's a Texas Rangers picture pitcher who uh, gave himself mm. the nickname Sweet Lettuce. So I was uh, like, oh, that works. That's a great nickname. Sweet Lettuce. <laughs> get, All right, l- Andrew. Listen, shouts, shouts to Gary Bird, Garrison Matthews, who uh, is yeah, uh, that's now a Hulk, one. by the way. <laughs> oh, he's, he's gone? No, he's now a Hulk, I should say. Like, no oh, one knows, no. I'm sure not even anybody knows that he's on the Hawks at this point. He's not really playing. Yeah. Just, Gary, right. Shouts to Gary Bird. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Okay, Andrew. Number one. Board is yours. Question number one. The Hawks have fired a coach midseason twice in the past couple years. They are not alone, however. In the past five seasons, there are three teams who have fired a coach midseason two different times. Who are those teams? You get one point per correct answer. You could potentially hmm. get three points here, Andrew. Boy. So his last five years... And these are teams that have fired a coach mid-season two different times. Mid-season two different times. The Kings? The Kings are incorrect, oh, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, if you're going uh, like last 20 years, that would be a good, uh, uh, good guess. All right, Brad, uh, you have a chance to steal. You could potentially get three points here. Oh, jeez. In, in um, teams. Hmm. Minnesota. That is correct. Yes. Ryan Saunders and Tibbs. Yeah. For one point. That was the one I was confident in. Um, hmm. Who else has been fired in recent days? Uh, this is not going to be good radio. Um, Brooklyn? That is correct. Kenny Atkinson and Steve Nash. Wow. Ouch. Can you make the clean sweep, Brad, and get Ooh. all three points? I mean, my default. Other than the King, by the way, I would I, put, I would have said the Kings too, Andrew. You weren't you weren't crazy to say that. Uh, oh man, I'm thinking about guys who fire postseason. I don't. I, I honestly don't have, don't have a guess. Maybe I'll I'll just say Houston. That's not right. Houston. That's that's, that's incorrect. So the other one is Cleveland because of Jim Bayline uh, and then Ty Lue. Remember, started off zero and six yeah, and yeah. fired him. That was just five. That was exactly five years. See, I knew Beeline and I couldn't think of another guy they fired. So that makes sense. Yeah. All right, Andrew, uh, you're down four zip, and Brad, you have yeah. control of the this board. Bad. Uh, I will go with number six. Question number six: How many players on the current Hawks roster? have ever had a 40-point game in their career. And you don't have to tell me who they are. Hmm. You just have to give me the number. I'm just thinking, I'm going to think through it. You know, Trey, Jante. Mm-hmm. I will say five. Answer is five. 
Yes, five. That is incorrect. Andrew, ah. you have a chance to steal. Okay. I know for sure two of them. Okay. <laughs> the easy um, two. I know that Sadiq Bey has done it. Um, okay. Now it's any randos. <laughs> These guys <laughs> randomly have 40 point games. I'll say four just to hedge. Well, unfortunately, Andrew, John Collins' career high is 38. No, is it three? And which means the correct answer is three. Dang it. Trey DeJounte and Sadiq. I should have gone with that. You had a chance there. I should have gone with that. I was just like, maybe Bogdanovich has done it. You know, maybe yeah, in some 35. weird universe, mm-hmm. Justin Holiday did it. Like, I don't know. Dang it. All right, Andrew, you have control of the board. Maybe Gary Bird. Maybe Gary Bird. I mean, who knows that? <laughs> He was on the he was on the Rockets. I mean, anything can happen on the Rockets. Uh, number three, his was uh, twenty eight. I had to look that up. Yeah. Um, number three, the Hawks have had eleven different two man lineups play at least eight hundred minutes together this season. Only one of those two man lineups has a negative net rating, according to NBA.com. Who is in that two man lineup? And you get one point per correct name. So these are two-man lineups that have played a lot of minutes together, at least 800 minutes. And this is the only one out of the top 11 that has a negative net rating. Who is in that Hmm. one? I honestly don't have any clue. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, DeJounte Murray? Andrew, that is correct for one point. Can you get the other name? Oh, boy. Let's see. What a... About a Kong Wu. Andrew, that is absolutely is that right? correct. Wow, I did not think you would get that. Very impressive. And, and I, 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 I'm a sicko, and I, and I actually knew that one because I'm, I'm. Oh really? I'm, <laughs> I'm deep in the weeds, as you might imagine. So yeah. I was, I was, I was ready. I was ready to steal that one for sure. Well, Andrew, you have cut the lead in half. But Brad, you have control of the board. Uh, number eight for Justin Holiday. Question number eight. The Hawks currently have the 21st-ranked defense, according to Cleaning Glass. The last time Atlanta had an above-average defense was the 2016-17 season. Who led the Hawks in steals that season? Ooh, steals. (laughs) That made it a lot harder. Um, uh, I will say it is Dennis Schroeder. That is... Incorrect. Andrew, you have a chance to steal, and I will say this person uh, led them in steals per game and also total steals. Okay. 2016-17 so uh, is what you said? 2016-17. 2016-17. Yeah. Oh, what about our other th- th- uh, Hawk-Thunder relationship here? Tavos of Alosha. Andrew? That is absolutely correct. Yes. It was Tabo. Yes. Andrew has pulled within one Whew. with three I'm mel- questions. I'm melting to down. Go. Andrew, you have control of the board. Give me number four. Question number four. Despite averaging 26.7 points per game at the break, Trey Young did not make this year's All Star game. Luckily for Trey, he has made a couple All Star games. The same can't be said for this player who scored the most points in NBA history without ever being selected to an all-star team. Who is that player? Hmm. Most points without ever making an all-star team. 
most points without ever making an all-star team? Hmm. Gosh, Jamal Crawford? Andrew, that is correct. Yes. For two oh. points, former Hawk, Jamal Crawford. Yes. Uh, pulled ahead now. Yes. Five Let's to four. Two questions left, but Brad, you have control of the board. Uh, I'll go number seven. Question number seven. Atlanta takes 38.7% of their shots from mid-range, according to Cleaning the Glass, which is the second highest frequency in the NBA. Which NBA team takes the highest percentage of their shots from mid-range? Hmm. It was the Hawks for most of the season. Um, Phoenix. That is correct for wow. two points. Oh, this is getting good. So Brad just moved ahead six to five. Which All right, that brings us to our final question. There may have been another question that turned out to be incorrect, and I caught it before we recorded. Okay, so uh, this is our final question. Brad is up six to five. It's anyone's game, whoever wins this game, uh, is going to be the winner of the week, which is very exciting. Wouldn't you say you're excited? Uh, I'm excited. <laughs> a, lot of, okay. a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure right now. Okay, that. so Andrew, you're going to get first stab at this. Okay. Uh, the question is, Trey Young has 3,101 career assists for the Atlanta Hawks, which is fourth all time. We are going to try to name the other nine players oh my in the gosh. top ten for career assists for the Atlanta Hawks. So how this works, Andrew will give me a name, then Brad will give me a name. We'll go back and forth till one of you stumbles. And whoever does not stumble will win the week. So Andrew, oh, I just need boy. a name, an assist guy for the Atlanta Hawks all time. What about Jeff Teague? Jeff Teague, number six all time. Over okay. to Brad. Uh, Doc Rivers is the all-time leader, so Doc Rivers. That is correct. Doc Rivers, number one all-time in Hawks franchise history. Back to Andrew. I feel less, much less confident after that answer that Brad just gave. (laughs) Well, this is kind of in my wheelhouse, admittedly. This is not really fair to Andrew, but it's okay. I'm here. Uh, What about Joe Johnson? Joe Johnson is number seven, Andrew. Okay. Wow. A great pull. Back to Brad. Um, Mookie Blaylock. Mookie Blaylock? Number two. Brad's just going to rattle these off uh, in order, Andrew. I don't, Good I, don't luck. Have the whole, I don't have the whole list, I don't think. I, yeah, those those two I have. Be, this is going to be rough. Um, All right, Andrew, can you pull another hawk out of your hat? What about Dominique? <laughs> Andrew, you're still alive because he was number nine. <laughs> oh, number no. nine in career assists. And oh. you're back to Brad. Digging for the bottom battle. of the barrel. <laughs> All right, now, now, now it gets harder. Um, uh, oh, um, Lenny Wilkins. Lenny Wilkins. Was he on the top 10 career assist list? Yes, he was at number Ooh. five. You scared, you scared me. You scared oh, me. boy. So, Andrew, there's only, uh, let's see here, one, two, three names left. You guys have named six of the uh, other nine names. So there's only three left. Can you get one of the final three? <laughs> Oh my gosh! Not a lot of great Atlanta point guards recently. <laughs> That's um, true. This is a really old name that I just—I okay. don't know if I don't know his stats, but I know that he is a very famous hawk. <laughs> okay, Bob, All right. Bob Pettit. 
Andrew. Bob Pettit, number eight. Back to Brad. <laughs> oh, that, that is what I was going to say. I swear to God, that's what, that's what I was going to say. Because um, he has like every Hawks record. Um, wow, this is thrilling. Oh, oh my God. Two names okay. left. I was not prepared. I, I, I think I am cooked now. Like I, <laughs> I like, think I might be cooked too. Um, now, I will say, number three on the board is still out there, and then number 10 is the other name. Number three on the board is still out there. Who could it be? Who could it be? It's not like I don't think it's anybody modern. I don't, you won't don't tell me that. But I think it's I don't think it's anybody that's like recent. Um, no hints. Don't look I don't at my no face. hints. Um, <laughs> I'm looking up to the ceiling. Nobody can see it except you guys. I'm looking at the ceiling. Um, oh, he's got, uh, he's got the all-time leaders posted on his ceiling. Yeah, I wish I did. <laughs> if I knew the question ahead of time, I would I would just be right. It'd be right there on my fan. I'm looking at. Um, <laughs> I'm just gonna pick her. Um, Eddie Johnson. Is Eddie Johnson on the top 10 all-time oh assist list? I, I hate, I hate this response because I have no idea if I'm right or not. He is number three. Eddie oh, Johnson. Wow. Fast Eddie Andrew. That means that you have to name number 10 on the He's- Hawks all-time assist leader list or you lose the week. I will stall on behalf of Andrew by saying I have no idea that he's number three on the list. Hey, John, that sounds insane to me, but hey, it's I thought he was going to be like 10 or something. But. Oh, my gosh. All right. Well, you doubted Fast Eddie. I did. That was before my time, admittedly. <sighs> I am, like I said, cooked <laughs> here. Uh-huh. Um, you are, by the way. It's not, it's, gonna... not, it's not Dwight Howard. I'll tell you that. It's not yeah, Dwight Howard. Not, not Dwight Howard. Dennis Schroeder didn't play enough for them. Um I know this is wrong. I'll just say Josh Smith. I have no clue who it is. That's not even a terrible guess. Well, Andrew, right. it's actually a Hall of Famer, a six-time All-Star. Oh, um, it's one of the St. Louis guys then. Um, and an NBA champ. I'm, of course, talking about Lil Abner, a.k.a. <laughs> Cliff Hagen. Oh. Shout out to Cliff. Still alive at 91 years oh. old. Of course you are. I forgot about Lil Abner. <laughs> what about Lil Abner? <laughs> well, in an alternate universe, I think I would have won this. Mm-mm, nope. But well, yeah, I, th- I think so. I, th- I think in, the, in this world that maybe existed a few minutes ago, Andrew might have won. <laughs> but today we're giving it to Brad. Congrats, Brad, on winning Andrew versus the Beat. Brad, uh, thanks so much for coming on. Go. Check out Locked on Hawks and then go follow Brad on Twitter at B.T. Roland. Thanks so much for joining us, man. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm a listener and really enjoy the show, so I appreciate it. All right, Andrew, that was Hawks Week, a very eventful Hawks Week. But that means uh, we got to pick a new team, and we've got 15 teams remaining, half the league, and it's a mix, Andrew. I mean, we could get a team like the Knicks, who are playing so well right now. Bring on the Knicks. Uh, on the other hand, we could get a team like uh, Detroit or San or Antonio. Or Charlotte. The uh, lamellaless Hornets would be... Yeah. Eh. All right. But we still got, you know, Boston's there, uh, Philly's there. So there, there are still good teams. Yeah. Golden State. A, uh, Steph Golden Curry's State. coming back this weekend. That'd be a great pick. That's right. So That's let's right. see what the wheel is going to give us this week. Our Wheel of Phantom team will be hmm, the Memphis Grizzlies. Ooh, okay. That's kind of juicy. Am, that's pretty juicy. This is a team that may, some some are doubting. 
this point. Yeah. Like, can, are they true contenders? Contenders or pretenders? Let's find out next week. Hey, if you want to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, we'll read it on the show. Just like this one from Zul Sunley. Real good stuff. Five stars. Love all the pod incarnations, but the Saturday Slam and Jam is a true gem. Lighthearted, insightful, and always fun. I'd also like to take this opportunity to suggest that we start saying, Joel drops the hammer when Embiid drains one of those buttery smooth jumpers from the nail. Hashtag Hinky died for our sins. Thanks so much for that review. This one comes from Cossers Rafting. Thank you. Five stars. I love the show. Come whitewater rafting with us at Coasters in North Wisconsin. Oh, okay. Coasters.com. The shows, the shows can all come for free. We can go whitewater rafting wow. for free, Al. Uh, listeners, mention this review, and you get a buy one, get one whitewater rafting at Coasters. Wow, hell yeah. This person is really taking advantage of these five-star reviews. Very good. Uh, this one comes from DB Wit. 2011 uh, slamming satis- sa- slamming Saturday satisfaction five stars. If you're looking for the Working Man's NBA podcast, look no further than the Saturday Slamming Jam. You might be flipping your flapjacks while you listen, but there will be no flat pancake takes on this show. After a long week at the factory or in the mines, unwind in the amp. <laughs> ambience of andrew's reasoned opinions treat yourself to the tranquil sounds of mr baby cake's trivia voice let your worries melt away like butter on hot cakes while andrew and al break down the toughest nba topics with a palm whether you are a casual fan or an nba sicko this pod is sure to leave you satisfied and smiling thank you so much for that one and then one more from T dot colon F Y L comma I O seven C B eight H slash colon dot Y eight U nine eight. Oh, five stars. Love the slam and jam. Who else could fill an entire lineup with Steven Adams? All stars. Great stuff. Thanks so much for listening. Hey, to Andrew, this week's episode. before we go, oh, yeah. before we go. Oh, yeah. What's up? This this Wheel of Fandom Week is incredible. This is the first week we've ever had where we theoretically wouldn't need to own League Pass to watch every single no game. No kidding! Four national TV games for the Grizzlies wow. in a row at wow. Denver, at the Clippers, at the Lakers, and Golden State at home. That's wow! Pre- that's pretty good. That's pretty good. I'll take that every single week. Wow. The wheel, the wheel, the wheel has done us right again, Al. It's amazing. <laughs> this is great. Uh, thanks so much for listening. Enjoy your weekend and the basketball, and we'll talk to you guys again next week.
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.